Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to um, continue kind of where we were two, two Sunday nights ago, where I preached about John the Baptist. I want to preach a message tonight entitled Voices from the Wilderness. Voices from the Wilderness. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get into the scriptures. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the way you lead, for all you do. We thank you for all those that stood desiring to serve you in night and day worship and prayer. And even tonight, I'm praying for revelation on the word in your leadership, that we would understand your ways. We confess. We don't always understand your ways. So I'm asking that tonight you would clarify your leadership to us. We would understand who you are and how you deal so tenderly and gently with us. So even now I ask, release revelation in the room. Release the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our understanding. I take this room under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Put clarity on our minds. And Lord, I ask you to stand with me and hold my hand and let me speak as your oracle tonight. And all the glory goes to you, Jesus. All the glory goes to you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Okay, let's start in Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to look at what John the Baptist said about, or what was said about John the Baptist, and it's what he said about himself. When they asked him, who are you? By, by what right have you to be out here baptizing? It's an interesting question because the, the whole, that whole dialogue's in John 1. You can just write that down later and look at it if you want. But the, the, the interesting thing about it is John is the son of a priest, he has the authority, being the son of a priest, to be a minister in Israel. But what he's done is he hasn't gone through any of the normal channels. He didn't go through the, the, the priesthood ministry school of the Pharisees. He, he didn't go through the, the training under Gamaliel like, like the apostle Paul. What it says about him is that he was in the wilderness until he was revealed, John was. He was in the wilderness. And so uh, historians tell us he was likely raised by this uh, sect called the Essenes, the Essenes. And they were ones that would give, they would give such attention to holiness, they had daily baptisms many times up to 10 times a day where they would come before the Lord. They would get baptized. They'd say, Lord, we want to be holy before you. And, and it's likely that John the, baptize, John the baptizer was raised by the Essenes. So he, was, he came up in the wilderness, and the Essenes had a, an encampment outside of Jerusalem in Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And there's, you can go there today. My wife and I had the opportunity to go there. There's all these baptismal pools, the way they were raised. And it's likely John the Baptist came up in the wilderness, said he was coming up in the wilderness well, then, when he starts his ministry, he goes out beyond the Jordan, and he's, again, in the wilderness. And he's out there, and it's a five-hour walk from Jerusalem. He starts 
He's the guy that starts his church in the furthest out of the way place, hardest to get to spot in the wilderness. And so when they ask him, who are you? He goes, I'm the one. They said, are, are you the Messiah? He goes, no. He goes, are you, what are you, a prophet? He goes, no, but he is. And they said, well, who are you? He goes, I'm a voice. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And this is what Matthew 3 says about him. He, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. If you're taking notes, I just, just jot down Mark 1, 3, Mark 1, 3, Luke 3, 4, Luke 3, 4, and John 1, 23. It's the same verse in, in the other gospels. And it's, it's this fact that I'm, I'm wanting just to nail is that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that there would be this messenger that would prepare the way of the Lord. Well, we talked about this two weeks ago about how he's the model of what it means to be a forerunner. He's the picture of what it means to go before the Lord and make ready the way for the Lord to prepare people and to, and to call people to readiness in light of the Lord's coming. And so at the end of the age, the Lord is releasing that same thing that was on John the Baptist. It's called the spirit of Elijah. He's releasing it on an entire generation to make ready the way of the Lord. Well, this is what's interesting is that John, his ministry, his anointing, his magnet to gather people was all centered in this place called the wilderness. Everybody say the wilderness. The wilderness. And he, he was literally in the wilderness. He was literally in the desert area out by the Jordan. He was raised in a desert area in Qumran, and he was literally in a desert area by the Jordan. But biblically speaking, throughout the, the Old Testament, the wilderness is referred to literally and figuratively. It speaks of a place where God takes his messengers and actually prepares them. And that's who John was. And I want to be very clear that at the end of the age, the company of believers across the nations who will be messengers, who will be deliverers that will prepare the way of the Lord, they will have to go through the wilderness. They don't just get to show up, skyrocket to the top, get a bunch of sort of, you know, platform and ministry accolades and then become a deliverer. They don't go, go from nobody and day one, you know, they just blow up, get a viral moment on YouTube, and now they're just the messenger of the end of the age. That's not how it's going to work. It's not how it worked in the scripture, and it's not how it's going to work at the end of the age. The church, the praying church at the end of the age who will prepare the way for the Lord, will go through the wilderness. Now, that doesn't sound awesome. I don't know a lot of people that are planning a vacation to the wilderness. 
Where are you going for your vacation this year? Sahara Desert. Why are you going there? Because it's dry and hot and painful. That's why I'm going there. Yeah, nobody says that. And if you are saying that, we'll lay hands on you after the service to help you. But here's the truth. God has to fashion his deliverers through difficulty. The difficulty is critical for the fastening of the deliverer so that in a time of difficulty, the deliverer stands with ease because they've already been through challenging times. And so just, I mean, if you're taking notes, just jot this down. He uses the wilderness to fashion the hearts of deliverers. Voices for the Lord, ones that are voices, prophetic voices, they come from the wilderness. It's God's method. The apostle Paul when he got knocked off the horse, when he was blinded, and he, and he goes through that fast, and then the scales fall off his eyes, he, he, he doesn't immediately end up in ministry. In fact, he's in, he's in Damascus for a pretty short period of time, and, and what happens is they want to kill him. And he has to run from there, and he ends up back, and I believe Tarsus, uh, Galatians calls it Arabia, but that would be Tarsus, and he's there for some 12, 13, 14 years. And when you read Paul's uh, story about his life, all the difficulties and challenges he went through, most commentators believe that the majority of the difficulties that he went through was when he was in Tarsus, when he was in Arabia. And here's what's interesting about that season of Paul's life, that 12, 13, 14 years. We have no record of any conversions taking place. We have no record of any disciples that come out of that season. What we do have record of is times that he was beaten with rods, times he was beaten by the Jews with stripes, all these difficulties and challenges that don't show up in the record of the book of Acts. And, it, and that's why the commentators believe it took place when he was there in Arabia. What was that for the apostle Paul? What was that? The wilderness. The wilderness. This is what we have to come to grips with. I, I just think about this in my life. I mean, so much of my life. I, I look back and I think, man, on this side of things, that thing that I went through, it did not go the way that I thought it would. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, you got that plan in your mind and you're gonna go for it and you feel like it's the Lord and you go into the thing and you do the thing. And here's what I found out. Most of the time, it's 10 times harder than I ever imagined. And in obedience, it has 10 times less the impact than I thought. 10 times harder, 10 times less impact. But on the outs outside of it, on the other side of it, I find this, that my heart is 10 times closer to Jesus. It's really true. Because here's what we do. We get, we get a word from the Lord. We go, oh, I had a dream. I was leading millions of people to the Lord. I'm called to be an evangelist all over Africa. Reinhard Bonnke, he was a kindergartner compared to what God's calling me to do. I am going to lead a billion. He wanted, uh, whatever, 100 million. I'm leading a billion. 
The Lord showed it to me in a dream. We go, okay, good. And then I go, dear God, you're in trouble. Because the, de- the depth of the wilderness you're going to have to go through to be qualified to have the authority and to be a messenger to lead a billion, you have no idea how hot, how dry, how hard it will be so that you can actually be qualified to be approved and entrusted with the gospel at that level to see that many come to the Lord. And here's what our challenge is. The Lord speaks to our heart. He leads us into something. He tricks us into obedience. We get into it, and then when we get into it, it's way harder than we thought. And then we use cute Christian charismatic lingo to begin to talk ourselves out of the very thing God called us into. Because what we think is we're going to step right into the fulfillment of the prophetic dream and the destiny, and God goes, yeah, you are going to be that. You are going to step into that prophetic dream and destiny, and I have a 14-year time of beatings set aside for you, Apostle Paul, so that you can actually be qualified to preach the gospel throughout all of Asia Minor. And then what we do is we use these cute Christian sayings, these little charismatic sayings, and it sounds spiritual, it's just not biblical. We say, you know what, I was just going, and I'll tell you what, I was following the Lord, and the grace lifted. A grace lifted. Really? Are you in Christ? Yes. So God's inside of you? Yes. Well, the scripture's pretty clear. If you humble yourself before him, he pours out grace on you. So why is the grace lifting? Because grace is available to the humble in Christ. And you're carrying Christ on the inside. The only way grace lifts off your life, quote unquote, is if you get in pride. So this concept that it got hard and that equals grace lifting is false. Hardship doesn't equal lack of grace. Hardship equals you're probably in the wilderness where you need to humble yourself so you can have an abundant encounter with grace to enable you to do the very difficult thing that you could never have done on your own. Am I making any sense tonight? And what tends to happen is this. We get the word from the Lord. We obediently follow. We fall in, he, he tricks us with love. I mean, and it's not trick. He just breaks all of our ambition. We, we fall in love. We go, oh, I want you. He goes, that's right. Now, and he says, I want you to come with me. We go, okay, I'm coming with you. And he goes, it's going to be awesome. We go, okay, great. And we step into the thing that he's calling us into. It gets so much harder in that place. And when it gets hard, we get offended. We go, God, how, this is so hard. It's so hard. I mean, I thought you said da, 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 we were going to do this together. Where are you? He goes, I'm fashioning your heart. I'm right here with you. I'm forming your heart through difficulty so that in a a day of trial, when all the world is losing its mind, you won't be. You'll be able to stand firm, rooted in the calling and, and, and the anointing that I have for you. Am I making sense? But so many are walking around offended with the Lord. Why? Because his leadership did not look like what they expected. Because the outcome and the timing of the thing that they thought the promise was for didn't come to pass in the time and in the way that they thought it would. And so they're offended with God 
unable to access the grace of God, puffed up in arrogance, imagining, I know how this is supposed to go, God. He goes, no, you don't. Because not only am I interested in you doing these amazing things, I'm actually interested in getting 100% of your own heart. And while you're in it for yourself, I'm going to attack your selfish ambition until you completely give up so that I can fully have you. And then when I fully have you, it won't matter what, what you get to do because you'll want to fully have me. Does, it, does this make any sense? So what he does is he takes us into the wilderness. He reduces us. He breaks our selfish ambition. He fashions and he forms our hearts in that place of difficulty. Why? So that he can ultimately anoint us. And here's what he wants. He wants to be able to anoint us and then allow us to operate in the John 14, 12 greater works. And he wants us to, 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 to flow in those things and not lose our self in pride when we do. And I'm convinced this last generation is going to see more miracles, more signs and wonders, more power encounters, more prophecy, more dreams, more visions, more every cool thing that you've ever seen in the Bible. Multiply it by 100. We're going to see it in the last generation. And God has to take us through the testing of the wilderness, the trials of the wilderness, so that he doesn't lose us when he begins to use us. And so we have to understand the way he leads to not be offended, to not imagine the grace is lifting, and in some ways to re-understand our lives. Because so often we think that wasn't the Lord. It, it got hard. It got difficult. It blew up on me. It couldn't have been the Lord. And the Lord goes, no, no, it was me. It was me the whole time. I was right there with you. So he uses the wilderness to fashion deliverers. Let me just say this sentence. He allows and he authors difficulty in our lives in order to bring us to maturity and love. He allows and authors difficulty in our lives in order to bring us to maturity and love. I used to say it this way. God is the one that constructs collisions. Because he's actually exposing our own hearts and our own, own ambitions in those difficulties. Now look with me to Hosea chapter two, and I wanna speak to the specifics of the Lord's motivations, because this is where we get hung up. His motivations are pure, they're clear, they're holy, they're righteous, and they're good. They're always good. He's, he's never motivated by anything that's not perfect. He doesn't use evil or, or negativity from himself and, and that he's not after bad things for you. He's only after good things. He's good and all he does is good. But at the same time, he uses difficulty because he's good to bring us to maturity. All right, look at Hosea chapter two. Now, contextually, he's talking about Israel and what he's doing to Israel at the end of the age, but this gives us insight into the way that he leads his people. 
verse 14, he says this. Hosea 2, 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal or my master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by that name no more. So first is how this is how the Lord leads us. He allures us. You remember when you first got saved? I mean, when I first got saved, I walked outside and I was in shock because the sky was bluer than I'd ever imagined, than I ever remembered. The trees were greener. Everything was better. And I remember simply looking at the sky and looking at the clouds and being just in, just in shocked overwhelmedness saying, oh my God, you're real. Oh my God, you're real. Every, you're, it's all real. The sky was blue, the trees were green, wind was blowing my mind. I was like, where did this wind come from? This is nuts. I was just completely euphoric in my salvation. And I just remember those days of, you know, first time just experiencing the Lord in prayer and, and, and just being in my home, just praying and worshiping and, and just feeling, being filled with the Holy Spirit and just like this intoxication coming on my soul, just I am so in love with you, God. I will do anything for you. Did you have that kind of experience when you first got saved? I mean, just those early days of such blessedness with God. You know, I found that in those days, he gets us to pray prayers that we pay back for the rest of our lives. I love you so much. Anything you want, I'll be a martyr. I'll suffer for you, Jesus. He goes, I'm so blessed you'd say all that. I'm writing all of it down. I've got an amazing memory. And then we get going, and then we kind of learn the, the ways to go in Christianity, kind of get our 100 verses memorized, and we kind of know that, you know, how things go, what services are like, and what Christianity is, and and we don't, we don't really remember all those radical things. We kind of settle down. And what happens a lot of times is as we're trying to be obedient, all of a sudden we didn't know when it happened, but that glory cloud that was kind of following us, all of a sudden it lifted. And things got a little difficult. And all of a sudden challenges began to arise. And I always, I kind of giggle at Christians because we're all sure Satan himself is tracking us and he's hawking us down. I go, man, how are you doing? Oh, I'm suffering. What's going on? Lucifer is after me. Oh, the archangel? Oh, yeah. He's in my bedroom. I need you to come, pastor, to anoint my bedroom, to cast Lucifer out of it. Well, I don't think Lucifer lives in your bedroom. What I think is you're human and you're weak and God's leading you to a place of difficulty that you'd learn to rely on grace and not your feelings. And more often, that's the challenge, is that 
our weakness, our humanity is on display right in front of us than it is that we actually have the fallen archangel knowing our address. So he allures us, he draws us in, he speaks tenderly to us, and he speaks tenderly to us the entire time, and we find ourselves in this wilderness place where it went from being where we're whelmed with the presence of the Lord to now it's dry, it's difficult, it's, it can be hard. And there's seasons in that, even in the wilderness, that there's these vineyards that pop up, like it says in that verse. This, these seasons of fruitfulness, but you have this knowing on the inside, this is not the fullness. I, man, I've, I've spent my whole life knowing that every time we have a season of fruitfulness, it is exponentially smaller than what I've dreamed about in my own heart. Because he, And he said, I'll do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. And I'm like, I've got a big imagination. So I always have to look at this thing that my experience of fruitfulness is still way below anything that I believed and have prayed for. And I have to, I have to understand that there is a, a vineyards that God gives you even in the place of the dryness, even in the wilderness. He gives her her vineyards, and then he actually says this, and he takes her through the Valley of Achor, where the Valley of Achor means the Valley of Tears. And it's in that place that he gives through the, the difficulty, even through sorrow, he reminds that there's hope. There's, there is a hope. There is an expectation for him to, to, to be there, to be present, to, to fulfill everything he promised. And he says, it's in that place of the wilderness. Now watch this. In the place of the wilderness, he says, she shall answer as she did in her youth when she came out of the land of Egypt. What is the answer? The answer is found in the next verse, verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. That's what Israel did when Israel came out of Egypt. When Israel came out of Egypt and Israel was at Sinai and God said, I'm about to come down on this mountain, sanctify yourself for on the third day, I'm coming down. Jeremiah in chapter two, he clarifies that was a betrothal. That was a, a time where the Lord says, you are mine and I am yours. And Israel says, I, we want you, Lord. We are going after you in the wilderness. That was a betrothal between God and Israel. Well, the Lord says at the end of the age, he's going to bring Israel back to that. But this is the way that he leads us. He takes us into the wilderness, and from there, even through tears, even through difficulty, he gets us to say, I want all of you. Even in the dry place, even in the difficult place even in the challenging place. He gets us to say, you are my husband. And it's through that process, he removes from our mouth the name of every other master. Beloved, the reason why the Lord takes his people through the wilderness is to remove from us every other desire for some other focus besides the love and the affections of God. I'm telling you, listen, at the end of the age, the church is going to be single-minded in her affections. 
Jesus is not coming back for a bride that has like 15 other lovers. He's not coming back for a, a, a church that's divided in her affections. He's not coming back for, for a bride that kind of wants him. No, he's coming back for a bride that in her weakness and in spite of, of all of her brokenness will be completely radically head over heels in love with her bridegroom God. That's what he's coming back for. And so here's what I want to tell you. If God has taken you to the wilderness, it's not because he's mad at you. It's not because he's against you. It's, it's not because he has a, an ill intention towards you. If God has taken you to the wilderness, it's because he's radically in love with you and he wants to remove every other lover from your life through that place of difficulty. Man, I'm preaching good. I just say that to make myself feel better. So what's the wilderness? I, I, I identify three versions. Three versions. There's a wilderness of suffering. And this, see, this is what happens to us when we're in the wilderness. We just cry. <laughs> the valley of Acor. All right, there's a wilderness of suffering. There's a wilderness of obscurity. And there's a wilderness of barrenness. This is not an exhaustive list. There's all sorts of things that could qualify for the wilderness. But these three are things that I think the Lord is uh, emphasizing, at least in my own heart right now, so I'm gonna share them with you. First, wilderness of suffering. Suffering. I think we've, we've been really, really um, talked out of a, a, a really clear biblical truth, and it's that God actually leads Christians into and through suffering. God does. And so often we've been taught that if it makes us feel good and if it increases our temporal comfort and pleasure, that that's God's blessing. But if it's difficult and decreases our temporal comfort and, 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 and pleasure, that that's the devil. But if you read what Jesus called blessed in the Sermon on the Mount, it requires us to actually rethink what is actually blessed and what isn't. He says being poor in spirit is blessed. He says being persecuted is blessed. He says mourning, when you, uh, blessed are those who are mourned. Spiritual mourning is blessed. There's all sorts of things that we would say, that's not a good thing, that he goes, it's blessed. He says you're blessed, ready, when people say all sorts of negative things about you falsely for my name's sake, you're blessed. I just can't imagine that. That doesn't sound like blessing. Let's just say I gave an altar call right now and said, I want to impart the blessing of people lying about you. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody's answering that. But here's our problem. We've been religiously taught instead of being scripturally instructed. 
And what Jesus called blessed isn't always what we feel like is blessed, but his blessing, he adds no sorrow to it. Even if it's difficult, he actually uses it for our better. He makes all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So suffering, the wilderness of suffering, well, what does it look like? It can look like physical discomfort. We have a team by extension, a Sun 56 team of African missionaries that are in South Sudan. It's a war zone. God led them there. He led them there to a war zone to preach the gospel. They live on dirt floors. And they just got deluged with, I don't even know how much rain it was, just a ridiculous amount of rain, floods everywhere. And our guys lost everything. The floor of their house turned into a mud bog to where they were putting their foot in the floor and pulling their shoe out. I mean, pulling their foot out and their shoe was staying down in the mud. This was in the house. They lost everything. Physical discomfort. Did the Lord lead them to South Sudan to preach the gospel? Absolutely. Did he call them and equip them and train them and send them? Yes. Did he know that that suffering was going to happen? For sure. Was he making that all happen? Well, no, he doesn't make it all happen. But God's sovereign. He knows it's going to happen. And even through it, he leads us to it and he pours out grace to withstand in it. He strengthens us in it. And we we get the video back and these guys are so happy. This is hilarious. They've lost everything. They're so happy because the one thing that they were able to salvage from this massive flood mud bog deal was their papers so that they could actually travel. Had they lost that, they would have been captive. But somehow, the only thing they were able to keep was their paperwork so that they could move in and out of country. And they're going, praise God. And you're like, well, I mean, you know, that's probably normal for them. No, that's not normal for them. That's real suffering, real discomfort. Is the Lord in that? Yes, he's right there in that with them. And, and, and in that suffering, there is joy. It's a persecution. It's a suffering. It's a physical discomfort, I should say. It's a suffering. Well, there's persecution. There's when people rise up against you. They say all manner of things against you. They, they, they lie about you. They say evil things to you. That's a persecution. You're not getting persecuted if you, you know, were like speeding and cut over a lane and the guy's like laying on his horn at you. That's not persecution. You know, the spirit of heavy traffic comes on you and you start acting poorly on 285 and and then people are like cutting you off. That's not persecution. Some of us have an anointing for bad driving. I'm in that group. If that was persecution, I'm getting persecuted all the time because I'm not a very good driver and people cut up cut in front of me. You idiot. I'm like, bless you. I'm getting saluted, the one finger salute and I'm trying to bless them. That's not persecution. What is persecution is when you love Jesus and they mistreat you for it. When you love Jesus and the family member 
talks negatively to you about all, uh, talks negatively about you to all the other family members, and you show up at the family gathering, and everybody treats you like you're a leper. That counts. Not, not, not because you're acting like an idiot at the last family gathering. Just let's be clear. Running into the family gathering, telling everybody they're going to hell, will get you a bad family gathering next time around. That's not the... I'm talking about you love Jesus, you're kind to people, and they're absolutely rude to you. And they hate you unjustly because you love Jesus. I remember before I was in the ministry, I had a job selling cell phones. It's when they came in bags. Anybody have a cell phone that was in a bag back in the day? They were these giant packages. <laughs> yeah, a few people. They were big. Some of the young people were like, How, why would you need a bag? Because the phone was this big. It was that big. And you carried around in, a, in like a backpack that you hung over your shoulder and it, you thought you were cool as could be. It had a cord that went, yeah. <laughs> the 25-year-olds were going, oh. Had a cord, went into the bag, talking on it. You like thought you were so cool. Well, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm, and then they all know I'm a Christian, and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be a witness and share the gospel. And I remember one day I came in, and those guys had taken uh, some, some pornography, and they plastered it all up on the wall right in front of my desk. I walked in the office, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And they're all standing out there just laughing at me. I was 20 years old. And I remember just saying, well, you guys are going to have to go in there and take that down. And I mean, it's just awkward. You just feel like an idiot. And they're like, you're virgin. And you know, whatever they're saying at me, idiot and all that. And it's just bad and awkward and ugly. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'll just say this about that job. When, they, when I was transitioning out of that job to, to go to another place, my last day, all those people that had mocked me, they would come, they came by my office on that last day. They go, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I was like, sure. And they'd sit down, and I had these 15-minute counseling sessions with like eight of them. Man, you know, I've seen you. I think you're a real Christian. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I just want to ask you, man, what would you do in this situation? And they would start, I'm 20 years old. They're asking me, like, what would you do in these lives? These guys are, like, making $100,000 a year selling bag phones. And they're asking me what, I, what would be my counsel for their lives. And what I, re I realized then that the world is staring at you, Christians. They're staring at you. They're trying to figure out if it, they just want one that's real. They just want one. And they don't find out if you're real on one conversation. They find out through a year and a half of poking and prodding and putting pornography all over your desk. And, and I won't even go into it. There's, there's debauchery in that place. But they, they find out if you're real over a couple of years of time. And then when they decide you are, they'll actually bear their soul. Persecution, that's wilderness. Well, mental and emotional stress counts. When you read Paul, he goes, man, all these things I'm going through, physical discomforts, all this difficulty, and he goes, on top of that, my concern for all the churches. Those are persecutions. Those are sufferings. Well, the wilderness of obscurity, let's talk about that, obscurity. And I think that's, this one is the, it's like the, the dead center of it. It's interesting to me that John the Baptist isn't put on display in the center of Jerusalem. Think that through for a moment. He's coming to announce to the world that Jesus, the Messiah, is about 
to start his ministry and die for the whole nation and all the nations. And instead of him, like, taking over the Temple Mount, he's five hours away by foot. And instead of him coming up through the ranks in the priesthood, he's raised out in the wilderness. See, this is what the Lord does with his messengers. He takes Moses and tucks him away for 40 years because he doesn't want Moses just to echo the voice of other preachers. He wants Moses to be the voice. He wants Moses to be the deliverer. He wants to put him in a place where God can set him aside and he can fashion his heart in the way that God desires the, the greatest he wants to set him aside and, and burn all the ambition out of him so that everyone else gets promoted before him so that God can ultimately anoint him because he's not interested in him just sort of like, you know, being another, you know, preacher in the nation among the slaves. He wants a deliverer that will take them out of captivity. And so he has to fashion him in this place of obscurity. It's what he does with Paul. It's what he does with David. David, he's like 15 to 20 years, depending on how you do the math, with the prophetic promise that he's going to be the king, and his Bible school is running around in the desert with a demonized king hunting him down. Obscurity. And we have a real problem with this in the church. Because everybody imagines that somehow notoriety and platform equals anointing. And then you see somebody that came in after you and they get promoted before you and you're offended because of it. And I would tell you, God is working you in that. He's working your heart in that. Why? Because he doesn't care about you being on the platform, he cares about your heart being fully given to him. And so he'll work you in obscurity. He'll work you and have others pass over you. He'll, he'll work you by, by sitting you on the bench. And the entire time, he's fashioning you in the wilderness on purpose because he's got a greater thing for you that he wants to bring from you. Hiddenness. He puts you aside on purpose. You're the vessel that he's fashioned and formed and he has to have the thing dry all the way through so he sets you on the shelf. Because if you're used too quickly, the, the vessel breaks. It's in that place, that testing of patience, the testing of hiddenness that God fashions the heart. Wilderness of suffering, wilderness of obscurity, wilderness of barrenness. And I think probably more than anything, I can't say it that way. One of the most impactful chapters of my whole life is Song of Solomon chapter five. And I want to end with this. So look at Song of Solomon five. It's this wilderness of barrenness that she goes through. Here we have the maiden. She's radically in love with the bridegroom. And in chapter three, we see what it looks like when she's in disobedience. But in chapter five, she's in lockstep with him. She is fully sold out. She just wants him and him alone. And then the Lord 
Well, he puts her in this place of barrenness. The ancients called it the dark night. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, says this, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He's calling her. He says, I love you. You're beautiful. You're faithful. Open for me. He goes, my head is covered with the dew, my locks with the drops of the night. He's coming out of the night. It's a picture of Jesus in the garden, inviting the disciples to come and pray with him. Song of Solomon's an allegory that we're, we're able to take clear gospel truths from. Three, she, she hesitates. She's reticent. She says, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? Verse four, my beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearns. She hears his hand on the lock. This is the door of our heart. This is the Lord. He's calling your name. He's drawing near. I love you. My perfect one, my dove. Come, come be with me. He touches your heart. You go, yes, I want to be with you too, Jesus. Verse five, I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. And, and that liquid myrrh, that's a burial spice. She's about to step into a season of barrenness and death. He's right there calling her and this burial spice is dripping off of her. Look at verse six. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leapt up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Let me just tell you something. Jesus wants to call you deeper into his love, deeper into his affections. And sometimes the very calling that he has for you is into a place of barrenness where you cannot hear him, you cannot see him, where it's dark and it's difficult. It's into a place of death. He invites you into that place with him. And she cannot see him. She doesn't know what he's doing. She cannot hear him. She doesn't, she doesn't hear clearly the voice of the Lord right now. She doesn't know where he is. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called, but he was silent. Have you ever had seasons of prayer where you're crying out to God to answer you and there is no answer coming? Verse 7. The watchman who went about the city found me. She's walking around looking for him in the dark night. Finally, she finds some spiritual leaders. That's what the watchmen represent. Spiritual leaders. They found her. And you know, you kind of think, well, good. This is going to work out really well for her. These leaders are going to take care of her. They're going to, they're going to help connect her back with him, and, and her heart's going to come back alive again. I want to also underline this point. She hasn't done anything wrong. And she finds these watchmen, and they, it says, they struck me and they wounded me. And some of you, the whole process of your life has made no sense because you cannot 
construe, you can't connect God's leadership because you've seen him lead you and lead you and lead you. And all of a sudden he led you into a place and it got dark and it got dry and it got difficult. And you're trying to figure out why would you lead me in this? And in that place, you got struck, you got wounded. And you're going, how could you have led me into this? This has got to be the devil. This has got to be something. I must have missed it. Maybe I'm in sin. And the entire time, the Lord's going, no, it's me. I called you into the night with me. I called you into the wilderness. I called you into this place of difficulty. I'm trying to get something from you, from your heart. I'm looking for a heart that's fully after me. And even in the place of difficulty, even in the place of barrenness, even in the place of being struck and wounded, he goes, I want all of you. Do I have all of you? And here's what happens to her. They struck her and they wounded her, but here's what it says, they took my veil away. And all of a sudden, where she was veiled, she's no longer veiled. All of a sudden, she can see in a way she couldn't have seen before. All of a sudden, she's clearer than she ever had been in the middle of the dark night, in the middle of the difficulty. And then she turns to these daughters of Jerusalem. These are like other believers that are kind of like on the fence, like watching her life. Like, are we really going to go after him? And let's look at you and see what's going on with you. And he, she turns to the daughters of Jerusalem. And, and they're basically like, I would just say, sort of these, these nominal Christians. And, and she says to them, listen, if you know where he is, please tell him I'm lovesick. And I'm telling you, beloved, that is the point of the wilderness. God wants to bring you to a place of being, this term, lovesick, where nothing else will do, where the only thing you want is him, where everything else doesn't matter, where the platform doesn't matter, where the popularity doesn't matter, where the ministry doesn't matter, where who knows about you doesn't matter, where whether or not you can get by or not doesn't matter, that all you care about is being lovesick for God. She goes, I don't care even who you are, but if you know where he is, just tell him, tell him, I'm lovesick. I don't want anything else. I just want him. I don't need to understand. I just want him. He doesn't have to fix it. I just want him. And then they turn and they look at her and they say, what is your beloved more than another beloved? You're a beautiful woman. Why would you want him this way? In other words, they go from looking at her as this one that's been struck and beaten and broken and, and she's kind of odd. And then this thing where she says, I am lovesick for him. And then they go, well, wait a minute. What is he? Because they see her life. They see her heart. They see that she's not offended, that she's radically in love. And they say, we want to find him too. What is he more than another? What is he that you would say this to us? We want to know who he is. And then verse 10, through the end of the chapter, we get one of the most powerful, powerful, beautiful descriptions of Jesus 
And she says, my beloved is radiant. He's the chief among 10,000. His head and his hair, it's, it's black and wavy. All the ways that he leads, his leadership is perfect. Oh, and she expounds on his, his body of carved ivory, speaking of the cross and the stripes he bore on his back. And she is so taken with the beauty of the man Christ Jesus that the dark night in the wilderness, it, doesn't, it hasn't thrown her off at all. The difficulty hasn't thrown her off at all. The obscurity hasn't thrown her off at all. The, the persecution hasn't thrown her off at all. She's come out of it completely radically in love. And I just want to say this to you. The wilderness seasons of your life haven't been allowed by the Lord or directed by the Lord to destroy you. They've been allowed or directed by the Lord so that he could have your heart. That's what he's after, beloved. He's after your heart. He wants the one thing that he's placed outside of his sovereign control, your heart. That's what he's after. Finally, at the end of Song of Solomon, she's, she shows up and sort of the, the daughters or the, the commentator of the book that says, who is this coming out of the wilderness? See, she's been in the wilderness this entire time. Who is this? She's leaning on her beloved. She's so changed. She's so different. You can't even tell what she's like anymore. In fact, the two, she's leaning on him. The two look like one. Beloved, I want to tell you something. If you've been through the wilderness, if you've been through the persecution, if you've been through the obscurity, if you've been through the barrenness, if you're in it right now, it's not to destroy you. It's to see your heart become fully abandoned in the love of God. That's what he's after. This is where forerunners are fashioned and formed. They're fashioned and formed in the wilderness. This is where deliverers are made. They're made in the wilderness. And it's no different for us in this generation. Those that will operate in a forerunner spirit are going to be fashioned in the wilderness so that we can be deliverers to an entire generation in the earth. Amen, amen. Let's stand.